Good morning. So good to see you all. That is the funnest story about um, the sun coming out. Who, who was telling that praise about... Okay, so we can, we can look at you when uh, Angela and I were laughing. Angela Price is in my small group. And at 3 o'clock in Alito, it was like this horrible storm and it was going to hail and the clouds looked bad. And so Ted called all our small group and canceled them coming to our house that night. And like 10 minutes later, the sun was out. It was you. It was you. (laughs) And then Ted was too embarrassed to call all the small group right back. So we didn't have small group, but I'm glad you had your miracle. (laughs) That really is great. And I am happy too that the sun's out. I was looking at my little iPhone yesterday and it was like, a big cloud over the sun for today, and I thought, not again, not another Thursday with the rain. It's fun to be here and open some mail with you today. Um, I was with my parents recently, and it was really funny because they were talking about when they retired, they moved to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And they said, well, when we got there, we got out all our love letters and burn them together outside over a fire. (laughs) And so my first reaction was total shock. You wrote love letters to each other? Like, that was kind of weird to think about. But then I was so sad. And I said, why did you burn those letters? I would have wanted to read them one day. And they said, exactly. Those were letters meant to be read by them alone. And it's a good thing for us that the mail that we're reading, even though it was written to the early church, it is meant for us to read as well. That was God's plan so that we could know him and um, understand who he is and his great love for us. So for the next few weeks, we are going to open up the book of 1 Peter. This was mail sent to the Jewish and the Gentile Christians that were scattered across the peninsula of Asia Minor. Today, that would be northern Turkey. These letters were penned by Peter. Silas was his secretary. Peter wasn't very schooled, and they wonder if maybe he used Silas, and he was a little more educated, to sort of pen this book, because some people like to debate that Peter couldn't have written something so eloquent as this. But Silas was his secretary, and this is the same man that would go with Paul on the missionary trip. So that's kind of fun to see how they all were involved in each other's lives. Why did he write these letters? He was writing to men and women who had radically changed their belief system. Radically. We've grown up in Christianity around us and with churches and all that, When Jesus Christ stepped on the scene and the early church started, it was a radical change in the world and in people's lives. So Peter's writing to the Jews and the Gentiles who have departed from their old beliefs. The Gentiles departed from their paganism. They were departing from their belief in a false god system. They were departing from their great spiritual ignorance 
in the world. The Jews were departing from their formalism, their legalism. They're trying to earn their way to God, which had been keeping them apart from a true relationship with their living Father. And now, these are the people Peter's writing to who now are following in the footsteps of a carpenter from Nazareth. Can you imagine? No wonder the outside world just thought, have these people lost their minds? No, because we wouldn't be here today. These people had grabbed on to the truth. And in the book of 1 Peter, it's obvious that the background of the whole thing is they were being persecuted for these new beliefs. And so Peter wants to encourage them. He has their persecution in mind. And I also think greater persecution was to come, and Peter was preparing them for that as well. You will never see him say in here, you know, that this is just for a short time and then we'll have this peaceful time here on earth. He's always wanting them to look to their time of peace when they are with God. And so these are the four things we're going to look at for the next few weeks. Here's how he tries to encourage them. He wants them to lift up their eyes to heaven. He wants them to get their eyes off these hard circumstances and behold the eternal truth that Jesus Christ left with them. And we stand firm when we do that by, on your outline, we maintain an eternal perspective. That helps us stand firm when hard times come. Secondly, Peter writes on your outline, we can stand firm by understanding that holiness matters more than relief from our trials. Holiness matters more. Hey, that's kind of a message we don't hear much today. I think often our main objective as a Christian when we're having hard times is to seek how to get out of it. How do we get out of this hard suffering and these trials that we're going through? And Peter wants them to know there's something more important than getting out of it. It's developing holiness within it. He wants them to grab hold of that. He wants them to understand we stand firm when we trust that God uses suffering for our highest good. None of it is wasted. He has a plan for it. And fourthly, he wants to let them know that we stand firm when we treat each other in the correct way, when we respond to the grace of Christ with transformed behavior in how we are with each other. If the church didn't do that, and everybody sort of tried to keep faith to themselves, we wouldn't have had that unity, that support system. The prayers, the fellowship, the lifting up, carrying each other's burdens, that was a necessity to get through that great time of persecution. So they should behave in a way that helps them to stand firm together. In a nutshell, this is what First Peter is about. He wants to encourage believers to face persecution so that the true grace of Jesus Christ would be evidenced in them. In fact, let me get my, out my verse sheet. Um, but turn with me to 1 Peter 5, and we'll see this theme. Look at verse 10. This is Peter ending his letter. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, 
after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God, so stand fast in it. Who are Peter's readers? We talked a little bit about who they are, but I thought this was interesting. Of all the people to talk about standing firm in persecution, it's Peter, the guy who ran away from persecution, when Jesus, who he loved and adored, went to the cross, who was absent standing under the cross? Peter and the other disciples, except for John. He was afraid. He was afraid of the persecution that would be facing him. And now, Peter writes about how to stand firm in it, and we know from the book of Acts, he faced lots of opposition, lots of persecution, prison, beatings, betrayal, slander, lots of rejection. So we have to ask ourselves, what happened from the cross to this letter of 1 Peter? And we know that in the middle of that, Peter saw Jesus alive again. Peter walked and spoke and ate and touched his friend and his teacher and his Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's why he went from a coward to a man of great courage, to a man of great conviction. Because Jesus was alive. And Peter never looked back. He faced so many persecutions. All the way up to the day he spread out his arms and died on a cross like Jesus. Willing to suffer and be a martyr for the cause of Christ. So when I think about that... I think that Peter writes with great understanding because he knows what it's like to feel afraid in the face of persecution. And he also writes with great conviction because he knows what it's like to get through it with Christ and the strength of Christ and the power of God. So this is a letter. It's a voice of someone who boasted and blustered and denied, who looked in the face of Jesus and saw that he had crushed his heart, who cried and wept and ran out of, uh, his, out of the place that he was when he denied him. But he's also the guy that ran to the tomb when he heard his body was gone. And he's the guy who was in a boat and saw Jesus resurrected on the shore and couldn't wait to get to the shore and dove into the water and swam so he could be near him. And he was the one who rejoiced that he was deemed worthy to suffer shame for the cause of Jesus Christ and eventually die for him. But before he left, he wanted to equip others to also know his Jesus and to follow him. So this is the letter to encourage them. Their persecutions related to their faith. We can also apply these principles. We have some persecutions that related to our faith. Not the same persecutions usually, but some of them are the same. But we can also apply this to, I really think, 
any suffering we have living in a fallen world. These principles are for us to hang on to truth and get through the hard things living in a fallen world. Now, Peter, he was writing them. They were probably not facing legal persecution at this time. Um, That would be when the hard stuff started happening. Persecutions that were put in by law. And uh, that would be a horrible time. Uh, This would happen. Nero decided to burn down Rome, and he had to blame it on somebody. So he said, I'll just get these strange group of people that follow this Nazarene carpenter and blame it on them. And from that point on, the persecutions rose to a great extent. This letter, most scholars feel, was written either just before that time um, or right when it was beginning. And Peter is writing to them. So uh, severe persecution broke out, 64 A.D., Before that point, it would have been social persecution. It would have been religious persecution. Some of you maybe have had some of this in family relationships, just some rejection, slander, betrayal. Uh, These Christians also might face some physical abuse at this point, uh, being disowned, lots of hard things that they were facing. And uh, if Nero's persecution had begun... Peter may have been writing this to prepare them for greater persecution that was on its way to them. Most people feel that Peter wrote this letter from Rome. You'll know when we get to the last chapter of this book, he talks about being in Babylon. That was sort of a code name for Rome. It kept people from knowing where Peter was. It kept him his location from being found out. He actually lived in Rome the last ten years of his life and was martyred in 67 A.D. It also was a way to make a statement calling Rome Babylon about the wickedness of this city. That's what Babylon always stands for. And I was just trying to imagine, you've radically changed your beliefs, you've maybe been disowned by your family, Um, you're in with new people, and then you're sort of scattered what would it be like to have someone say, i got a letter from Peter for us. Don't you know that was such an encouragement in their hearts? I just thought about how I can get myself worked up over hard things and pretty soon the world just seems like it's going to fall apart. And one wise, godly word from someone God puts in my path can just take my fears away. And that is how God used Peter in their lives keeping them on the right path. He calls them two names. Look at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So first of all, he refers to them as God's elect. Okay, we read that and go, yeah, yeah, we get that. Okay, if you were a Gentile, and you were called God's elect, that was a term only for the Jewish nation. They were chosen by God to be set apart, to be his people, and Peter is saying, you Gentiles, you're also God's elect. It's huge. 
The Jewish population believed the Gentiles were outside of the mercy of God. In fact, I read one quote where they used to say, God created Gentiles to fuel the fires of hell. And Peter says, they're God's elect. What a great way to open up and to encourage those Gentiles. The Christians were understanding the mercy of God goes out to the ends of the earth and is open and available to those who trust in his Son. And elect lets us know it was not anything the Gentiles did to deserve it. It was the mercy of God. We are not gods by human design or by chance, but by God's choosing. So when Peter calls them elect, he's also doing something else. He is reminding them, well, if you've been chosen by God, are you going to be abandoned by God? No. Impossible. Look at 1 Thessalonians on your verse sheet. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what God does. Look at the next verse, 2 Peter. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Peter then refers to followers of Jesus as strangers in the world. And the little literal address would read, To the elect sojourners of the dispersion. Sojourners of the dispersion. Okay, another amazing thing. The term dispersion also only referred to the Jewish nation. If they were outside the boundaries of Palestine. They were exiled Jews, and they were called Jews of the dispersion. And now Peter includes the Gentiles in this term. And what he's saying is, it's not just the Jews who are different from the rest of the world now. It's anybody who is a Christ follower. All Christians are strangers in this world, set apart. Our King is God, our home is eternity, and so all of us are right now sojourning. We're dispersed outside of the heavenly boundary that one day we will call home. We're strangers here because we view our life here as a journey toward God. That's why we're here. Unlike the rest of the world who's grabbing all the gusto they can get while they're here because this is all they think that they have. So a Christian's eyes are turned to God That's where our loyalty lies, and that is what should dictate our behaviors, our attitudes, our actions, our beliefs. I read an old quote that said this, The world is a bridge. The wise man will pass over it, but he will not build his house upon it. We are sojourners here. We don't invest our time and energy to build something here while forgetting that our true home is there. Jesus talked about this. Look at Matthew 6. He said, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in or steal. For where your treasure is, 
there your heart will be also. This word stranger, or your Bible might say alien, it's a word used when you talk about somebody who's in a town and they've settled there, but they haven't made it their permanent place of residence. So when Peter calls these readers this, he's saying, hey, you guys are settling in Asia Minor, but this is not your home. You are aliens there until you reach your true home. And let's see who's preparing them for home. Look at verse 2 in 1 Peter. Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. And let me just say this as an aside. Uh, You'll run into some other denominations or religions that'll say, you know, the Trinity, it's never called that in the Bible. You don't ever see it. You see it all over. You see the work, the three persons of the Godhead at work in one. Here's a great example of it. All the three persons of the Trinity cooperate together to bring us into our heavenly destiny. The Father, election, it originates in the will of God. And this verse tells us, the word foreknowledge, that election is in accordance with God's foreknowledge, and that means God's prior knowledge of all things. It involves God's consciousness of all that is to come to pass. The Spirit is at work. All the purposes and the choices of God the Father, the Spirit works in to make those possible. He deals with us by sanctifying us or setting us apart. He wants to make us fit for our calling. We see in this verse our calling is obedience to God. And then the Son is the one who makes it all possible by His sacrificial work. We see in this verse the sprinkling of His blood. And um, the way that's worded means a constant sprinkling. Constantly He's involved in our lives. And it signifies the personal application of the sacrifice of Jesus in our lives. In fact, look at Hebrews 9. And um, I have to confess, I had my wonderful daughter type my verse sheets for me, and, and she didn't get to it till late. And she left off like the second half of almost every verse. So <laughs> don't say anything to her. But I will uh, continue reading. You might want to look it up later. So Hebrews 9. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling, those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve God? Ah, I just love that verse. The only time in the Old Testament we'll see where people were sprinkled by blood as a congregation was at the time of the Mosaic Covenant. Moses stepped out. He'd been communing with God. He's got the covenant. We're a set-apart nation. Here's what God desires. The people listened. And here's what they said. All the words the Lord has said. We will do. And then they sprinkled the blood of a sacrifice over the people. It was a sprinkling 
for obedience. The very thing this verse is talking about. Our sprinkling by the blood of Jesus is for our obedience. That's what that's about. And then Peter says um, at the end of that verse too, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Have you noticed how almost everybody who writes something in the New Testament, they either open it up with grace and peace or they close it. We want you to have grace and peace. Grace, the incredible grace of God in our lives, what's, what's our response to that? Peace. We have peace because we understand who we are in God. Our forgiveness of sins, our future, eternity, the love he has for us to walk through this life, the plans that he has for us, we don't have to go through life without peace. Grace brings peace. And there are many other things that go along with grace that bring peace. And that's what Peter wants to encourage him with now. Look at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He wants them to know God's grace means security. Because we are wrapped in the mercy of God, we may be strangers here on earth, but we are secure strangers. Like a baby that's swaddled and they get quiet and still, we are swaddled in the security of a God that greatly loves us and will not leave us. It says here, in his great mercy, he has given us this new hope. That term, in his great mercy, always means God's unmerited favor in our life. It's nothing we can just strive to do. Strive to be good enough. Strive to please him. It is his unmerited favor upon us. And that is why Peter begins verse 3 by saying, because guess what? He's a sinner and he knows it. So he says, praise be to God. The Father and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop. That's a weird prayer. What Jewish person prays like that? The Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. A typical Jewish prayer was, Blessed be God. Blessed be the Almighty God. Blessed art thou, O God. This is a distinctively different prayer. It's Christian prayer. Because what he's saying is, No longer... Is the God of the Jews and the Gentiles distant? Because of Jesus Christ, we can see who God is. Because of Jesus Christ, we can be intimate and have confidence and be with God. We can actually know Him because He made His dwelling among us in His Son. And Peter says, Hey, this merciful God has caused us to be born again into a living hope, new birth, into a living hope. That's where we get our term born again that people like to make fun of. It's a very biblical term. It's a pretty good description of what happens when we are in Christ. So what does that mean? Look on your verse sheet at Ephesians 2. 
You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The rebirth of a Christian is a rebirth to righteousness. It's a rebirth to love. It's a rebirth to victory. And Peter's saying here, it is a rebirth into a living hope. The rest of the world lives apart from that hope. I've told the story of my dear friend that was very ill in the hospital, and she would have Christians and non-Christians visit her. And she said, wow, the difference is amazing. The Christians would visit, and they would talk about their hope that God would heal, their hope that that she would feel his compassion, their hope that his sovereign will would be done. And it would encourage her. And then the non-Christian would come, who, who loved her too, and just sit there and kind of babble a few things. And one of them actually said at the end, we're hoping for you. And when they left, she said, hoping in what? They don't really know what to hope in. Only the Christian has a living hope. How do we know that it's true? We read how we know our hope is true in verse 3. Look back down at it. In this verse, we see the act that gives assurance to every spiritual hope in your life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is our living hope. Look at Romans 6. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be united in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. All our hopes take rise in the rising of our Savior. And since our Lord is living, our hope is a living hope. 1 Peter 1.4 And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Okay, here's the next security Peter wants to tell him about. An imperishable inheritance tomorrow. Now this word inheritance, this is the word used when God would talk to the nation of Israel about receiving the promised land. He would use this word inheritance. I think Peter uses it here to compare how much greater the inheritance now in the age of grace. Um, They were confessing, uh, inheriting the promised land. Ours is greater. It can never perish, spoil, or fade. And let's look at those words. Can't perish. First of all, it's a gift from God, so it can't perish. But one definition of that word perish there um, would be unravaged by an invading army. 
Now we know the promised land had many armies invaded. But Peter is saying, never can that happen to us. No one can destroy what God's given us. Won't be spoiled or undefiled. That means it can't be stained by evil. Look at the promised land. The false worship going on. The idols. It was polluted. But our inheritance in heaven cannot be stained by evil. It won't fade away. That means time will not affect it. We know that the beauty of the promised land was often compromised. Our inheritance will never be faded or lose its beauty. It's kept in heaven by God himself waiting for us to enjoy what is our believer's inheritance. And here's the really most simple answer. At its highest, it is Jesus. It is Jesus himself. Psalm 16.5 tells us, it's not on your verse sheet, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance. The Lord himself is the portion of my inheritance. And the Westminster Catechism says, the chief end of man is to enjoy him forever. Jesus is our inheritance. You know, I was taught growing up um, that heaven was a place where I could do whatever I wanted and get whatever I wanted. And that sounded like heaven to me. Um, Gosh, that's not heaven at all. When we get to heaven, our greatest treasure will be Jesus. And that is all we are going to want. That's our inheritance. That's what we look forward to. Permanently enthroned in heaven for our eternal enjoyment is our Savior Jesus Christ wearing your personal name on his hands and in his heart. Jesus wants to be with you. What an inheritance. If we want to look further at the truth of our salvation inheritance, we also, which is unbelievable, will have the reward of participating in the glory of Christ. That is also our inheritance. Unbelievable to me. It says, when we see him, we shall be like him. This is the full redemption of the promised inheritance. Look at 1 John 3. Actually, I'm going to read it because you only have part of it. 1 John 3, 1. And two, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. That's what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. So, dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And here's how we know that we have this inheritance. The Holy Spirit is the first installment. Uh, Look at Ephesians 1 on your verse sheet. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And I'm going to go on. Who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Isn't that good of God to just give us this deposit to prepare us for our future inheritance? Now, even though we have a living hope, 
even though we have a future inheritance, we don't yet possess these things that will be ours. And until the moment we do, what does God do? He protects us with his power himself. More security. On your outline I wrote, he's a faithful protector today until we get to be with him. Look at 1 Peter 5, 1, 5. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Uh, my son Tyler, who has now just turned 25, which you cannot believe, yesterday he was in preschool, <laughs> age four, a cutest little guy, a sweetheart, a kind of shy and, and sweet. And I had him in a one-day preschool when he was four. And it was new. And I'd pick him up, and, you know, his spirit there would, would be pretty sad, and I was just trying to kind of evaluate it. And then I, one day he told me how they punished him for the day because he spilled popcorn out of his lunch and then they made him pick it up and clean it up. And I can remember thinking, they should have punished me. I mean, I was the mom who put popcorn in a baggie in his lunch bag. So I started trying to figure it out. And then one time they told me that when all the kids would play, he would sit alone in a corner. And I began to realize they were just harsh and critical-spirited, and he wasn't used to that, and he wasn't happy there, (laughs) and he was slowly shutting down, and they would punish him a lot for silly things. And so I remember picking him up one day, and he was in the back seat, and he was talking about his day, and then he said these most interesting words. He said, you know, Mom, they don't know how good I am at that school. And I almost stopped the car because I thought, those, that is a huge statement right there. And I realized he was wrestling with his identity because he was treated in a manner. He thought, I want to be a good boy. Of course, he's a sinner. But, you know, he wanted to do what was right. He was a good boy. And he, they were confusing him that he was a bad boy. And as a mom, I realized I have to protect him from that. And I can remember I turned around and looked at him and said, you're never going there again. And I asked him about it like a year ago. He said, I know, I thought that was so easy when I said that to you. (laughs) It wasn't a place for him. It was my job to protect him from a place that was confusing him on his identity. So we just hung out the rest of the year and had a great time together. He didn't go to school. And he's pretty smart. We belong to God. It is his job to protect us and protect our identity until the day we get to be with him. That's what he does. He's the great protector. He wants to guard our salvation till we're safely home. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. He will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep you strong to the end so that we will be blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. And he says, we go through life in faith and we're wearing that shield, that protection from God the Father. Here's another security. And this is amazing. Who would say, yeah, I find security in the middle of really hard trials? A Christian. A Christian can say that. And here's why. We believe our trials serve a divine purpose. That is huge. The rest of the world suffer trials without knowing that and how great a suffering that can be. 
Look at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come, so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Okay, there's some great things to learn about suffering here. First, he says, they're for a little while, even if they're through our whole life, because compared to eternity, that is a true statement. Secondly, he says... Yes, Christians will suffer grief. Yes, we will. In fact, another way to translate it is when you are in heaviness. He is saying we will have those emotions. He's recognizing earthly trials cause distress in their lives. And both of these truths can be dismissed by Christians today. The health, wealth, and prosperity speakers want to say he wants you happy and he wants you rich and then he wants you to send your money to us, basically. And so we wonder about these things. No. Our suffering has a divine purpose. Peter says it proves the, the genuineness of our faith and God loves to see that. And secondly, and more importantly, one day it brings glory to God. Isn't that a great thing to remember to get through our suffering? One day it brings glory to God. So Peter says, rejoice even in these hard times. We cannot do that if we don't believe our suffering serves a divine purpose. And we read about how the Old Testament teachers um, and prophets just wished they could understand that. And they wondered about, why would the Messiah suffer? And then, I thought it was the most amazing thing, they wrote about the suffering of Christ through the Spirit of Christ. Amazing. And so, he's holding their hand in that process. Peter says in this verse, he's holding your hand in this process of the trials you are going through. He is right there. How do we rejoice? We have Jesus. We have the Spirit of Jesus. We have fellowship with the living, unseen Lord. And I love it that Peter says, Well, I got to see Jesus and believe. You didn't even see him. And you believe. That's even better. That's faith. That's why you have joy. That's how we walk in faith. I love the stories of Corrie Ten Boom. You know, she was the Holocaust survivor, and then she became an elderly woman who would speak and travel, love the Lord. Such a faith. Always believed Jesus was with her. If you haven't read her book, definitely read some of her books. But one of the stories that always grabbed me was she was somewhere in Europe, and she felt God saying, you need to go to America. I've got something for you to do. And so she's like, okay. So she buys a ticket, gets on a plane by herself, Gets off the plane, is in, I think it was New York City, is just wandering. <laughs> no place to go. Very little money. No plan. But she knew Jesus was with her. And sure enough, when you read the rest of the story, she met all these people and people had her at her house and she had this huge ministry while she was there. That's the way we have to be 
in faith in order to walk through life in confidence and strength and not give in to the hardships in our life. If we know Jesus is here. Jesus is with me. When Jesus was in the boat sleeping, when the giant storm came up and the disciples are thinking, we're all going to die out here, and they wake up Jesus and say, don't you care that we're perishing out here? And of course, in one word, Jesus calms the sea and the wind and the waves, and he's puzzled. He looks at them and says, I'm right here in the boat. I was in the boat with you. Where's your faith? That's what Peter's talking about here. And then God's grace means transformation. What's a Christian to look like while we wait for our inheritance? We're not going to read those verses, but here's what it comes down to. We seek to reproduce the divine family likeness of holiness. You know, it actually makes no sense. Why in the world would we be delivered out of darkness and chains and sin and futility to sink back into it while we wait for our inheritance? But Peter's saying, your father's holy. His children need to be holy as well. And how do you do it? He tells them three ways right there. Here's how you're holy. You prepare your minds for action. And that means obedience is a conscious act of the will. And he says, you are self-controlled. And what that means is, guess how we used to be controlled? Outwardly. When we know Christ, we're controlled inwardly by the Spirit of God. And then he says, set your hope fully. Not on, we hope on people. We hope on situations. We hope on a promotion. We hope on more money. Set your hope fully on Jesus Christ. That's how we become holy for God. And then we have to recognize we are related to the judge of all the earth. Look at verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know it wasn't with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. This is our father. We're related to the judge of the earth. He isn't an old white man with white hair in a rocking chair just wanting to pat our backs. He is the righteous judge of the earth. Live in reverent fear of that. As we would an earthly father who needs to discipline us at different times. And then we do it because he paid a huge price to redeem us. This redemption is a purchasing from the marketplace of sin, and it was paid for by blood, and only Jesus could pay it, because he is the spotless lamb, the only sinless man. And what I love thinking about that is this is how Peter met Jesus. One of my favorite stories is how um, John the Baptist first was introduced officially to Jesus when he was starting his earthly ministry. And Jesus comes to him and says, I want to be baptized. And as he's coming, John, his cousin, looks at Jesus and yells out, There he is, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sins of the world. And the next day, Jesus passes by again, and John yells out again, Behold the Lamb of God! And this time, Andrew hears it and decides to follow that lamb. And the first thing he does, the Bible even says it, the first thing, he runs and gets his brother Peter so he can meet the spotless Lamb of God. That's how Peter met him. There's a song that we like to sing in church, and these are the words to it that I'm going to close with. And I think, boy, if Peter were here, he'd be singing these words because they are words about the grace of God And that's how we live our life, walking in that grace. For all that you've done, I will thank you. For all that you're going to do, for all that you've promised, and all that you are, it's all that has carried me through. My Jesus, I thank you. Let's pray. Father, we love you for this mail that you've sent us. May it be a salve on our hearts. May it inspire us to understand your mercy, your grace, and to walk in your holiness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.